it's fair to say that for many of us, it's gotten to the point where you feel uh, naked without your cell phone. Hence the reaction when you look at a picture like this. It's, it's gotten to the point where if I don't have my cell phone on me when I go out, I'll still get um, these phantom buzzes in my pocket, and I'll, I'll slap down to see what's going on. Did, did any of you guys get these? These kind of buzzes, even if you're not carrying your phone? You know, it's amazing. The, the smartphone has only been around for 10 years, uh, and yet everywhere you look, people are on these things constantly. What, what in the world did we do in, in doctor's offices or in airplanes or, you know, in, in the bathroom <laughs> before we had cell phones? And what is it about these little devices that, that have made them so ever-present in our lives? Sure, they are convenient, but I think, and I think you could argue that they make life easier and that maybe it's a, it's a safety thing, but I think it goes deeper than any of those things. I think that cell phones and maybe more generally social media have, have scratched a very deeply human itch or Actually, what's more powerful than an itch? I think that cell phones have tapped into a very human fear that we have. I think they've tapped into the fear of being left out. The moment I put my phone away, the moment I get a buzz in my pocket that I ignore, I'm missing out on something important, an inside joke that I won't understand, a party or an event that I won't get to go to, a piece of news that I won't know immediately. It used to be that loneliness was something that you, know, you experienced when uh, you were alone. But, but now this Pandora's box has been opened, and even when you are in a room with your closest friends, there are still 500 other friends on Facebook having fun without you, laughing without you, or going somewhere without you, or talking about some news event or some Trump tweet or some earthquake that the whole world has known about for minutes already, even hours, and now you're out of the loop. You're left behind, and you're weak. A couple of weeks ago, Darren talked about this fear of weakness that we have developed, this weakness that tends to be viewed as a total negative. If you are weak or if you're showing weakness, that's automatically something wrong and it needs to be fixed. But he did a great job of walking through the Bible and highlighting what he called a thread of weakness that runs through all these biblical heroes, all these biblical um, giants. Uh, in Sunday school, speaking of giants, we just wrapped up a series on the story of David and Goliath. And there too we see someone in David that looked very weak to the world and yet it is exactly in that weakness that God's strength can shine through. It is exactly in that giving up of our human strength, our acknowledgement that we can't do it on our own, that God shines his power through us. And Darren closed his message with verses from Isaiah 40 that remind us that in weakness we receive comfort and strength. Isaiah 40, verses 29 to 31 read, He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths go, grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. 
and what an incredible promise that is. I want to continue on this thread and take a look at Isaiah 41. Last week, Darren told us that in spite of our weakness, God gives us strength. And what Isaiah 41 shows us, I think, is that in spite of our neediness, in spite of our humanness, in spite of our brokenness, God has chosen us. Isaiah is an amazing book of the Bible. One commentator uh, made the connection that it is basically, it's a miniature Bible unto itself. The Bible has 66 books, and Isaiah has 66 chapters. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah can be compared to the first 39 books of the Old Testament, or the first 39 books of the Bible, which is the Old Testament. And in the first part of Isaiah, in these first 39 chapters, we see a focus on judgment, on God's treatment of the wicked. And it is important to be clear here, God isn't just going after idolaters and murderers and criminals in the first part of Isaiah. He's going after churchgoers, the religious people who, by all outside appearances, would look to be holy and upright. Judah is putting on a good face of holiness, but in the first 39 chapters of this book, this facade, this mask, is stripped away. Isaiah systematically breaks down this false holiness of Israel and shows them for what they are. Unclean, impure, thinking only of themselves, corrupt, broken, taking bribes, seeking their own financial gain instead of helping those around them. And it is made clear that God cannot abide this wickedness and falseness, and he is going to wipe out the fakers, chop them down like a tree in order to make way for a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom, a holy seed that in chapter 11 Isaiah will grow from the stump of that fallen tree. These first 39 chapters lay out Israel's sins like a lawyer preparing his court case. And the judgment is clear. Israel is doomed. Their pride and their dignity have been slashed through. They have been exposed as totally inadequate at the mercy of a God of justice. But the second 27 chapters, much like the 27 chapters of the New Testament pivot from judgment to a theme of mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. It is written for that remnant, those returning from exile and judgment with nothing left to be proud of, nothing left to flaunt, and is written as a comfort for a broken and humiliated nation. And in order to understand the comfort that is offered in Isaiah 41, we really need to understand the low place that we as humans are coming from. God's hatred for sin burns white hot. He is set apart and he is holy. And in Isaiah 41, we are reminded of the futility of trying to make it on our own. In fact, God doesn't mince words about it. In verse 14, he literally calls Israel, and by extension us, a worm. How does that make you feel? What do you think of when you think of a worm? What characteristics do you attribute to a worm? Gross? Slimy? Spineless? Weak? Useless? Fragile? 
pitiful, unwanted, from any other person, this would be hugely offensive. But from God himself, it's really just a reminder of what we are like without him. What we are like when we try to make it on our own apart from God. Israel, just like us today, constantly fought with the temptation to turn away from God. For them, it was a temptation to make alliances with other nations, to worship other idols, and to build up their armies and governments and putting their faith in people, in their belongings, or in themselves instead of God. Thinking that they could get by on their own. And God says here, without me, you're little. You're a worm. It's not an insult. It's just a fact. In the first seven verses of chapter 41, Isaiah explores a life without God. And to me, it reads with a little bit of ironic humor here. I think Isaiah is poking a little bit of fun. And I'm going to try and update it to make it a little bit more uh, modern. So I'm going to start at verse 5. In verse 5, he says, The islands, the whole earth have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach each other and they come forward. They help each other. And say to their companions, be strong. And I found a few quotes here. Maya Angelou writes, nothing can dim the light that shines from within. And Joel Austin writes, may we, get, we may get knocked down on the outside, but the key to living in victory is learning how to get up on the inside. Wes Adamson says, spirituality is finding the truth in you. Continuing in Isaiah, the metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. Individually, we are one drop, but together, we are an ocean. Michael Jordan said, talent wins games, but teamwork wins championships. And teamwork makes the dream work. One says of the welding, this is continuing in Isaiah, it is good, and the other nails down the idol so it will not topple. Excellence is a skill, not an attitude. Excellence is doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. The impossible may just be the untried. These godless men are trying to encourage themselves, trying to do everything in their power to survive. They encourage each other, be strong, as if their strength could ever match God's. They band together and help each other out. They complement each other's work and they do their best. And in case there is any doubt as to the outcome, verse 11, uh, verses 11 to 13 make it painfully clear what relying on human teamwork, strength, and excellence will get. And it says this, All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. Trying to live against God is like a worm thinking it can take on an army. Isaiah says, loudly and clearly, you'll end up squished. It all seems hopeless, and without God, it is. And so that is why verse 8 here is so incredibly significant. After describing the efforts of these godless men to avoid or fight off God's judgment, verse 8 begins with one of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Does anyone know what that word is? But. I encourage you to underline that in your Bibles. 
This is, this is an incredible word. It signals a total direction change. Just about any time the word but shows up in your Bible, your antenna should pop up because whatever is coming next is a game changer. And here it is no exception. Isaiah has reminded us of our total helplessness, of our worm-like status. But you, Israel, my servant, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. After verse 8, we see over and over again, scattered throughout the rest of the passage, do not fear, do not fear, do not be afraid, do not fear. And why should we not fear? Because we have been chosen. Because God has taken us from the ends of the earth, made us his servants, and chosen us, not rejected us. So do not fear. We are nothing without God, but do not fear, because we have been chosen. And what will God do for those he has chosen? These verses are full of promises of an active God who is working hard for those he has chosen. As you read, take note of how many times God speaks about what he has done or what he is doing. He says, I took you from the ends of the earth. I have chosen you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I myself will help you. I will make you new. I will answer. I will not forsake. I will. I will, I will. And I want to take a quick look at three of the general promises that are made here and the security that they give us in Christ. So first, we need not to fear because God has brought, in him, brought us close to himself. Verse 8 says that he has taken us from the ends of the earth and has called us to himself. And that is a wonderful statement all on its own, but there is something hidden here, a little bit, I think, that is important not to miss. For a Jewish person living in Isaiah's time, bring, being brought close to God was not necessarily a comforting thought. It was a terrifying thought. God was holy and pure, untouched by evil, and getting too close to a holy God spelled death for us. Even the holiest human, after taking part in purification and cleaning rituals, after confessing and sacrificing and cleaning and praying on their best day, had to approach the temple in fear and trembling with a real risk of being struck down and killed by a holy God. So what chance do you and I have in this situation? But a vision Isaiah had earlier in his book gives us a clue. In chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision where he saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and Isaiah, rather than excitement at being close to God, felt dread and terror, saying in verse 5, Woe to me! I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But, immediately after this, 
an angel, a seraphim, flew to him, flew to him with a live coal. And this coal represents holiness and the purity of God. And this seraphim touches Isaiah's mouth. And Isaiah knew that coming into contact with something so deeply pure and holy should have killed him instantly. But instead, something incredible happens. The seraphim says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Instead of Isaiah's sin causing death, God's purity declares victory over sin and makes Isaiah clean. God calling us close to him is a statement of sin-conquering redemption in our lives. Do not fear, for I have chosen you, and I have purified you and made you righteous. God has taken away our sin and drawn us close to him. Second, God will help us. In verses 13 and 14, God says, For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand, And says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you. When I was younger, my family would regularly attend the March for Jesus. I don't know how many of you remember going to the March for Jesus back in the day. But this was a parade. Did they start it up again? There was one last year, right? I think so. But for many years it wasn't. I think it ran from sort of the mid mid or late 80s through to the late 90s or early 2000s, kind of that chunk. There was this parade that was held all across the world in different cities. And, and Winnipeg, for many years, I didn't know this until I looked into it a little bit, actually had the largest March for Jesus in all of North America. Upwards of 50,000 people would show up and walk through the streets of Winnipeg with little booklets, and they would sing praise and worship songs. And when I was about seven or eight years old, I remember going to this, and we pulled into a parking spot, and we made our way into these massive crowds, ready to march. And I was in awe of the hugeness of the event. Thousands and thousands of people, dozens of vehicles with speakers playing music, ready to drive down the street. And I guess I was a little bit distracted by it all, because all of a sudden I looked up, and my family was gone. And I was alone in this massive sea of people. And at first, I kept calm. But as I kept being bumped around and and trying to work my way through this crowd of adults, I became more and more disoriented, and I could not find my parents or my family anywhere. And as the parade was about to start up, I became frantic. I'm sure I started crying. Searching for my family, I felt totally lost and abandoned. I had visions of living a life homeless on the streets of Winnipeg without a family. My life was over, and my hope was gone. And I felt completely helpless. But my dad found me. And he came up behind me. And he put my hand in his. And he guided me back to where my family was standing. I was never in much actual danger. But the danger felt real to me. And that's all that mattered. I was alone. And I couldn't make it on my own. In our lives, it can be easy to become disoriented and confused in the chaos of culture. It can be easy to lose our way, especially when we fully understand that we could never make it on our own. Relief is too small a word to describe our reaction to a God who reaches down and takes us by the hand to lead us closer to him and his kingdom. And in fact, God promises more than that. 
More than just taking hold of our right hand, in Isaiah, God says that he himself will hold us in his righteous right hand. In these promises, we see the chosen people of God being drawn closer and closer in. First, bringing people to himself from the earth, then taking us by our hand, and then here even holding us in his own hand. The efforts of man to build himself up fail dramatically, and we are worms without God. But we need not fear, for he has chosen us, and he has brought us close to him, and he has led us by our hand, and more than that, he is holding us in his righteous right hand. The emphasis here, the repetition of righteous and right, is just meant to show how incredibly secure we are in God's good, strong, steadfast hand. We are broken, lost, and unclean, but God calls us his servant. Now, to some that might seem a little bit underwhelming, being exalted to servanthood. But in God's world, in his kingdom here on earth, there is no higher calling. The word for servant here is the same word used to describe Abraham, to describe Moses, and to describe Jesus himself. We were lost, but we have been invited into relationship with God to be a part of his work. And let's be clear, it is his work. When you look at this passage, not once is there any mention of what we have to do. We are not valuable here because of our own successes. The heathens try and strive and work and build and are wiped away. And Israel does nothing through this passage. There is no accomplishment that makes them worthy. Instead, we see God as the active one, using Israel. It is his hand that holds us. It is his coal that purifies us. In verse 15, God says, See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them. God is doing his work through us. It is not by our own strength. Do you see how this applies to our lives? How this can affect our decision-making? To believe that it is our own responsibility to somehow be good enough or strong enough or big enough is as silly as the hammer thinking it needs to be the carpenter. God has this under control. He has chosen us. He is using us. And all we are called to do in this passage is rest in that promise. To let go of fear and to trust in God's faithfulness. To worship and glorify God for the difference he is making in our lives, in our church, and in his kingdom. In the midst of life's crises and valleys, when we are dealing with loss or pain or sickness, God says, do not fear, I have chosen you. In the face of rejection from the world, God says, do not fear, I have chosen you. When the urge to pick up your phone during a family gathering strikes, God says, do not fear, I have chosen you. And so I thought this could sort of be an interesting exercise to help put these words into practice or at least try and keep them on our minds and our hearts over the next few weeks. Mike has helped me and we have created a phone wallpaper that looks like this. And we've put it up on our website and it's available for download. And my suggestion is this. Go to the website and download this wallpaper and set it on your lock screen for the next couple of weeks. And every time you pick up your phone, 
in the next week or two, before you unlock it, before you jump to social media, before you start replying to emails or texts, before you check your bank account, before you surf the internet, take a breath and read this verse. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Take a moment to remind yourself of your true value, your true focus, and your true source of stability and comfort in life. Do not fear. We have been chosen. Amen. Stand and sing with us.